concept. If someone's willing to give you $10 million for your business, you just take it. It doesn't even really matter if it's a good deal or not. That's the conventional freedom line thinking. It's a thought experiment. If you want to have a second home in Aspen, that's not a $10 million thing. That's a $50 million thing. You got to go up to 50. I just pulled a little book called The Secret off of the shelf. It's a wonderful book <laughs> promoted by the greatest entrepreneur of all time, Oprah Winfrey. It suggests that if you put down that number on your refrigerator, that one day it will materialize. No, in your no, life. no, 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 That's no, no. You, you've got the secret all wrong, my friend. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> that is not how things materialize. Honestly, there is no room for misinterpretation. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Oh. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. If you run a seven-plus figure business, I know that's a lot of you out there. We want to be a part of your success in 2024. Click through on your phone in the show notes or head over to dynamitecircle.com. This is the last week you can apply for our new community, DC Black, in 2023. We'd love to hear from you. Book a call with the boss man. Say what up. So I just finished recording this one. It was really fun. It was a jam with the boss man about personal productivity and exiting businesses, which is something that came up a lot at DCBKK this year. We cover a few frameworks from our book before the exit and add a few new ones. So we cover the freedom line, which is a classic, but touch on some new ones, the tasty vine and the split and sell. We talk about some trends in terms of exiting, staying, and how you might go figuring out what's the best for your business. We hope you enjoy it. Stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to have our master of ceremonies at DCBKK, Adam Palmer, incredibly talented comedian, drop by to share a little of his experiences in Bangkok this October. A mug of hot tea. I do drink hot tea. Thank you very much. I drink mushroom tea of the Om variety. <laughs> I quit coffee for like seven years and then I came back to it. And then I was having these moments where I was like feeling kind of anxious. And I was like, oh, it couldn't be the coffee. I drink tons of coffee. It can't be that. And then quit the coffee again, like a year ago, went to the Om tea and mm -hmm. uh, completely gone. <laughs> All that anxiety just gone. It's a religious conversation. It is quite controversial. Speaking of controversial, also mushrooms. You always have to specify, is it culinary? Are we talking culinary? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just drinking, I'm sure, the extra expensive variety that comes in a can. It's pretty good. Turns out all I really wanted was a nice warm drink at the start of my mm -hmm. day. It doesn't matter if it has caffeine in it or not. And also, <laughs> there's just other things that change. Like, you don't realize what a freak you are when you drink coffee because you're like on the road. And before you even get your day started, before you even leave the hotel, it's okay. I got to like look and see like where the local coffee is. Do I have coffee in my room? It's erratic, irrational, borderline addictive personality <laughs> traits that go on before you can start your day. So all that's gone. So that's nice. That's why now that Huberman suggests you don't drink coffee until 90 minutes. You got all these people waking up and setting their timer for 90 minutes now and just staring at it so they can get... <laughs> <laughs> Completely sane. Completely sane. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> said to me the other day, and I think this is true, is like, can you imagine if alcohol was invented today? There's no way that would be allowed. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and, and maybe the same with caffeine too. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of controversial, I want to flag up to you at the top here something about personal productivity, a religious belief that I have, a conviction as Nietzsche says, convictions are more dangerous than lies. Something that I believed that I wasn't willing to take a second look at until a recent podcast episode. Shout out to Tim Ferriss for this amazing interview with a gentleman named Sam Korkos. Now, Ian, I'm going to flag up this podcast episode because I've actually sat down and listened to it more than once. 
And looking over at the YouTubes, this is a three-hour interview. Now, I did skip around to some relevant moments, but this interview was amazing. And the reason is, is because Sam, as far as I can tell, running his company levels, has some really fresh approaches to how to run a remote native company. And I'll just reveal one today. A lot of people are going to say this isn't that fresh. It's not one of the freshest moments. But for me, it challenged a religious belief that I am committed to. And the reason I am committed, Ian, because I've been coming to this show for over 10 years now, paying alms, paying homage to my guru, David Allen. Mm. That's right, the San Francisco hippie himself. GTD, getting things done. David Allen has always been very religious, from my perspective, my reading of the text, is no to-do items on your calendar. No to-do items on your calendar. There's a whole religiosity around this, around why we don't do this as GTDers. And so for years, I didn't put to-do items on my calendar. The reason for doing this is important. If you put an appointment with yourself on your calendar, and then in the same way that if you put a meeting on your calendar with someone who sucks, and then you lose esteem in that person, you can actually lose esteem in yourself. If you say, hey, I'm going to do this thing this afternoon, and then you don't do it, you start to lack trust and self-esteem. And David would typically say in his earlier works, he'd say, look, you don't know what your energy is going to be 4 p.m. on Thursday, and things are going to come up. We need a flexible system because every time your system breaks, you lose trust in it, and that's not a good system. You start to lose esteem in the system, in yourself, bad times, pay your tithe, Buy another GTD gift this Christmas to a friend. Thank you for worshiping at the Hall of David Allen. Thank you very much. Now, Sam says something different. He's a time boxer. And he said something basically like, you know, people say things, but then you hear something else. What I heard Sam basically say is, yeah, you know what? I'm freaking good at it. I'm good at it. I put stuff on my calendar. I do it. I show I up. I got high self-esteem. I'm healthy. I'm not drinking coffee. Wait, he doesn't drink coffee either? I don't, I'm assuming he's a oh, okay. coffee drinker. Yeah, I'm assuming he's a, t- he's a mushroom <laughs> tea drinker. I'm nice. assuming he's into the culinary mushroom. Yeah, mushroom tea. Mushroom tea. My brother. Just a small amount of mushroom in there. We take a small amount. It opens my... You know what it does. So. <laughs> anyway, the punchline is this, Ian. What I started doing is taking my calendar and simply creating space that was my best guess about what I needed to do that aligned with the priorities in the business. And what I had been noticing with the listing and when I stuck with my energy is that my energy was sort of lagging sometimes with the priority in the business. And so I open it up for the audience and for you to comment on. It's really, really interesting to find a little bit of discipline in a remote environment when sometimes that calendar can be anything you want it to be that day. It might make sense to be a little bit more prescriptive and to hold those appointments with yourself and see how accurate you can be. One of the things I think that Sam said that was really appealing to me is he said he advises for his new employees to do no more than 50% of their calendar being time boxed. And the reason was, is they weren't very good at it. And that really appealed to me because I'm a believer in, hey, we can be good at things. We can actually be good at things. And he said, I'm really good at it. I can do over 75% of my calendar Mm. because I keep the appointments with myself. I ship what I said I was going to ship and it really works for me. And I thought that's really interesting for our remote first company, Ian, when we're looking for structure, we're looking for ways to prioritize our behavior with the goals of this company, which is sometimes amorphous. It's in the cloud. We don't know. It's at a team retreat six months from now. It's in Google Docs somewhere. It's really nice to be able to look at that calendar and say, hey, look at this. Here's some hours that correlate to what we're trying to achieve as a company. So the challenge to the audience, what is superior? Using your calendar for only appointments and then having a to-do list that correlates with your energy or your modality, which is what GTD advises. Here is a list of phone tasks I like to do. Here's a list of computer tasks I'd like to do. Or to use your calendar as a time boxing mechanism to actually put projects and tasks on your calendar. Which side of the altar do you worship at currently, Ian? Uh, Both. This is the complicated thing about religions. A lot of times you can just subscribe to a couple of them if you want. 
But m- most of the time, they don't tell you that. You show up because the wafer is delicious. Exactly. <laughs> it's not real wine, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm still thirsty. <laughs> it's also a little bit of Pascal's wager, right? It's like, if heaven exists, I might go and I want a ticket. I might not go to Lollapalooza because they haven't announced the headliner yet. I want the option. You want the option. You know what I told my kid the other day? I said, uh, what if this is heaven? And his head just like swiveled right off his neck. <laughs> it's possible, buddy. Getting back to personal habits. I've been doing this time boxing for quite a while, but I wouldn't say it's like 50% of my day or even 75% of my day. I'd say it's like one to two hours a day. It's like respond to these types of emails, sit down and work on this document. And it's worked really well for me because me ignoring that time slot on my calendar basically means me not doing that task. And if I put it on my calendar, I have to do that task. There's no like, maybe I'll do this task if it's on my calendar. It's I have to do this task. But I do have some like maybes. And so the maybes are what I'm calling like the Noah Kagan note cards because I got this from him. I just bought a stack of like three by five cards. These are like ideas that I have for the day. So sometimes I'll like break down, okay, Monday, November 6th. These are the five things I need to do. And then like underneath it'll be like, this is what I'm thinking about. And I go through these note cards and I cross them off as I do them. If I don't do it, same as my calendar, like I'll push it forward on the next card. I'll tell you what, there's few things in life that feel better than sipping on a mushroom tea. And one of them is crossing, crossing off. That three- oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I knew you were yeah. going to say that. I love it. <laughs> it's true. One of the other things that I think will open up for conversation that I've been thinking a lot about what levels, which is Sam's company does is every meeting happens on a loom. And then the meeting is essentially like an internal podcast. And one of the cool things about loom is it's allowing us to consume information super efficiently and fast. I noticed this recently when we were doing speaker reviews for DCBKK. Yeah. It's going back and forth two or three times with each speaker. By the third time, I was able to review what was a 45-minute workshop in just a few minutes because I was absorbing right in to the critical moment. So you can imagine internally with a company, if me and you have a meeting about the podcast that could be relevant to the people doing our email marketing, our customer service, you name it, right? There's all these people who have a stake in this stuff, but typically we're not going to sit down after the meeting and write the review if it was the sort of normal, regular meeting. So I think there's an opportunity there to create this like kind of internal publishing process yeah, that keeps people informed in the way that higher level processes like mission, vision, values are supposed to do. Well, what if it was more particular? Like, okay, MVV, but how about what y'all talked about in terms of ad sales last week? Like if I could have a clear perspective on that and be participant in an efficient way, it broke my mind a little bit because I was like, oh, that's new. Maybe there was some process 20 years ago for that when David Allen came along, but I just thought, oh man, that's fresh. Yeah, especially because if you're like intimate with a basic conversation of like what's going on, you can listen to them two to three times. And then at the end of the week, you have 30 minutes to an hour worth of things to listen to. And then you get all caught up on the entire company. Totally. Well, and it's they're becoming chapterified now, right? You can create chapters and you can see the transcript. And so it's not even the fact that they're faster, but that you can jump into the specific moment that may or may not be relevant to you. And that I think there's just a lot of connective and serendipitous and kind of being on the same page opportunity there. All right. So we'll leave it at that. What side of the altar do you worship at? Send us your productivity hacks. What you think is sort of the the vanguard or the event horizon of what remote first companies are doing. I feel like that will be a theme for us here in the coming months. Quick news update here. We've been working all week on DC Black, speaking with both current and prospective members. If you're listening to these words right now and you sell more than seven figures of products or services on the web, you might be a good fit for this high-level community. Just by the numbers here, Ian, just some things of our current members, the average mm-hmm. revenue is $4.9 million a year. The average years in business is eight years. 12 of our members actually have a team of less than five, which is pretty interesting to reach those revenue levels. But also, a lot of them have teams more than 20. So, 
there's a lot of diversity in there. There's lots of e-commerce and SaaS companies, but also marketplaces, traditional services, and online publishers. So that's just sort of like a snapshot. DC Black is basically an online community modeled after things like EO. I think EO might be like the most well-known brand out there. There's also a new company run by Sam Parr called Hampton that essentially focuses on founders who are at a higher level. I wanted to mention some of the things that are different about DC Black. We fundamentally have the same things that most of these programs have. We have masterminds and we have events and we get people together so that they can share the secret goods with each other about what it's taken to get to that level of success and what the next step is. What's different is, first off, fundamentally, these communities are about the people that join. But what I think sets DC Black apart is that we're not ghettoized by location. People in DC Black, they live all across the globe and they're interested in traveling all across the globe. I think that connects us. The other thing is like a lot of people that are joining DC Black, they've known about the DC and people in the DC for a long time. And so there's an engagement level with what we're doing in the community that might be different from some other communities where people are joining as an opportunity or to sort of see what's going on. I think people are pretty committed to what's happening at the DC brand and the other people involved. Finally, what I'll say is we're involved in the day-to-day. We're building DC Black for the exact people who join it. I think there's a lot of founder involvement that's exciting. We're looking forward to making this the best-in-class community of this type. And we're working day-to-day personally to make sure that that happens. So I think that's one of the exciting parts about getting involved in 2024 in this community. A few other things about it. I just want to say the events in an in-person portion are enormously important. Just in a few weeks here, over 20 of us will be meeting in New York City. We'll be attending a basketball game, going on a tour of the incredible Morgan Library. We'll have a private dinner with some fancy chef that Ian found out about on Instagram. It's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to be working to finalize our 2024 plans of attack. And we're going to equip each other with those plans of attack. Yeah. And I think that's where the real value is. You walk away from a 400-person event and you maybe have one or two buddies. I think you go to a 20-person event and you might have more than that potentially because there's less people and it's a little bit easier to like figure out who your people are through the weekend. And when you can walk away from an event like DC Black NYC and equip several people with your plan for 2024 and keep each other accountable for that plan through 2024, that can make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Just get powerful eyeballs. It's incredible. Like, there's a lot of horsepower. I think that's the interesting thing. It's pretty rarefied air too, right? Like you're at a bigger conference. Sometimes it's like, wow, I got a lot of people in the mix. It's nice to have other people in that situation. You can pull aside into a nook at the fancy loft with the private chef and be like, yo, here's the thing. This can be powerful conversations. At our last event, there's a lot of vignettes of like, hey, I had this conversation and it really, it really moved the needle. And that's what these things are designed for. That's why they're smaller events. Speaking of events, we've got also events planned and coming up in Mexico, in Europe. That's like a big part of the product development roadmap here is rolling out events for 2024. A lot of that will depend on the composition of our new members that come through, where they're located, where they'll be traveling. And so a lot more announcements about that coming down the pike. Just a reminder, the requirements for the group are minimum $1 $1 million in revenue. As we said, our average is 4.9. We also have some other ways to qualify if you have an SDE of 350000 annual or more, or an exit of seven figures within the last 24 months. So those are the requirements. That's the deal. If you're curious, you can head on over to dynamitecircle.com and uh, check out that DC Black application form. Have the mushrooms hit yet? <laughs> small commercial break i put some time boxed on my calendar to do item says wish ian a happy birthday on the podcast happy birthday brother well thank you so much uh you can send me uh mushroom tea or bean Uh, no actually time actually time is uh time is over (laughs) time is over i gotta i gotta keep my self-esteem oh it's a hundred dollars a bag i can't afford it All right, Ian, moving on to the next segment. One of the major themes at DC Events, how to decide whether to exit or to stay in your business. 
In fact, one of our keynote speakers, Anar Volset, spoke about exactly this and some of the counterintuitive elements about this. We saw a lot of life-changing exits at DCBKK within the past year or two. I also encountered personally in my mastermind people struggling with the decision to sell or to move on. And I wanted to revisit some of the thoughts we've had historically, but also some new things that I've been thinking in regards to this. One of the things that really brightened my day recently, Nathan Barry wrote on Twitter of the incredible, I think, brave decision to not sell ConvertKit when Shopify came knocking. Someone replied, well, why didn't you sell it? Why do you consider other options? And Nathan said, because he read the book before the exit. If you don't know, we've written a book and it's got a sneaky little reputation around town as a book that founders really love and that inspires them to think differently about exiting. And I still think it holds up to this day. People still reading it. If you, if you have a book on the tip of your tongue, audience, I encourage you to write it. I've been on the receiving end of so many interesting conversations because I sat down and wrote a short book about something that we were going through. So needs to be more of that kind of uh, things in the world. So what are we talking about when we're talking about exits? Check out this tweet from Peter Levels. He starts by saying, crazy to see how poor most of my VC-funded friends are literally scraping by. Meanwhile, my bootstrap friends are entering high net worth and ultra high net worth category, buying mansions and stuff like that. 10 years ago, all of them were broke. Founding a VC-funded startup is usually a 1% to 5% odds of success or less. When you do get successful, you only keep 5 to 10% of the equity. He goes on to outline, essentially, the argument of the tropical MBA. You know, generally, our worldview, which is, hey, bootstrap, it doesn't preclude you from going big at all, and it increases your hit rate to get to wealthy. So fast forward to these DC events where I'm sitting across the table from the situation that Peter Levels is talking about, that people are on the doorstep of wealth, they're on the receiving end of wealth, and they're making calculus and we're having conversations. There's three key elements I want to point to that's come up recently in conversations for me. The three elements that I might make is a little coda to the end of the book. Number one is revisiting the freedom line. Number two is the split and sell. And number three is the tasty vine, a concept I got from you because I know you're a big fan of those, what are they called? The uh, sour vines, big fan. Huge. In fact, that's what I got you for your birthday. Get you a <laughs> box of sour vines. Delicious. Okay, so let's revisit these three concepts real quick, Ian, because they keep coming up. The first is the freedom line which is the line at which financial questions will be shelved for a lifetime. Hat tip, Jason Cohen. Typically, the freedom line in the bootstrapper space is put at 10 million. Just say it, 10 million bucks. If someone's willing to give you $10 million for your business, you just take it. It doesn't even really matter if it's a good deal or not. That's the conventional freedom line thinking. It's a thought experiment. You don't have to believe this stuff. It's just right. a, it's a framework. In VC world... The traditional idea of the freedom line is 50 million. Why? Why would a VC say 50? Because expensive tasting. A lot of pockets to fill. Expensive taste. If you want to have a second home in Aspen, that's not a $10 million thing. That's a $50 million thing. You got to go up to 50 if you want to be a VC. This is what I'm hearing. I don't hang out in those clubs. I don't know. There's also lower figures for people who are into things like financial independence retire early. I've seen people put it under $5 million would be a done deal for them based on hanging out at different kinds of clubs, skiing smaller hills. If you ski smaller hills, you don't need to get to 50 mil. But the basic point is <laughs> really understanding what your freedom line is effectively a number where you're not going to be going out into the world in the next three to five years and like building another business. You're just going to be living off of the nut that you get from the sale. And that's the rationale. So here's a way you can do this. We had a friend that did this recently. They went to a financial planner. In fact, they went to three financial planners. And they said, this is the way that we live. Did they pay him 1% a year? For... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I highly doubt it. <laughs> it's probably a one-time fee. And they said, look, we need to figure out what our exit number is. Like, this is the way that we want to live. This is our anticipated lifespan. This is what our kids need, et cetera, et cetera, for their college, whatever. This is the way that we expect to live for the next 30 to 50 years, okay? All of the financial planners came back with what their number was. 
they figured out what they interpreted that and then they put it on their refrigerator, literally put it on their refrigerator, that number. Okay. Fast forward a couple months later, they're in conversations to sell the business. One of the firms comes up with that number and they had a decision to make basically. It's like, do you get greedy? And the answer for them was no, you don't get greedy. We figured out what this number is. This is all we need. Therefore, let's proceed with the deal. And I thought this was like a really smart way to approach it. Because most of us, we hear that number, right? Especially if you haven't written it down on your fridge, you hear the number, it's like 10 million. You're like, well, I think it's worth a little bit more. more. Maybe it's 16. I think if I can negotiate my way out to 18. I like. I thought you said 20, right? They didn't get greedy and they reached their number. I just thought it was a fantastic um, exercise because they were so methodical about it in the way that they approached the number. There was nothing emotional about it. They simply went through the motions and came up with this number. There's a law involved in that transaction, Ian. And I just took a step away from the mic. You didn't get to hear it. And plugged into the TMBA library and pulled a little book called The Secret off of the shelf. It's a a wonderful book (laughs) promoted by the greatest entrepreneur of all time, Oprah Winfrey. It suggests that if you put down that number on your refrigerator, that one day it will materialize. No, in your no, life. no, 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 That's... no. You you got the secret all wrong, my friend. <laughs> they, they... <laughs> that is not how things materialize. Honestly, there is no room for misinterpretation. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Oh. <laughs> all right. So freedom line. Know your freedom line. Really have a sense for your freedom line. Let's talk about the second concept. It's the split and sell. The split and sell. Take it for a walk around the block, Ian. Here's the idea. Your business, and this is kind of the theme of Before the Exit, your business is a golden goose laying cash flow eggs on your doorstep. What an amazing thing to have free cash flow eggs. It gives you a platform to do all sorts of things in the world, to hire people, to justify expenses, to take expensive trips to Europe on business. Now, One other thing it can do is beget another business. And something I'm seeing a lot of folks do in anticipation of an eventual exit is beget that thing a little bit sooner than you otherwise would. Is there a side business, a complementary creation that you can generate now so that when you do eventually exit one day, that you'll have that other business to jump on to? Now, we did this ourselves. We not only talk it, we walk it, baby. Way back in 2009, we had this e-commerce business that also we thought made a good story. So we started up a podcast and we started telling the story. Turns out that the story of our business was actually valuable because it was a weird business. That's one way to do it. Another way you could do it is if you have an agency and you typically partner with other agencies because there's like a cabal of agencies that get together, well, why not beget the next agency and start to build it in advance so that you can ultimately have a liquidity event for one of your businesses and continue to cash flow with the other business. Now, I don't want to get on a podcast and tell people not to focus on their biggest opportunity, but the reality is, is the advice of focus, focus, focus for the big exit doesn't always apply to everybody who's running a business with natural limits on velocity, on growth, that your extra effort or focus won't actually pay out in dividends. Maybe you're playing the wrong game with your core business and laying a golden egg and creating a different business that's related, that's a parlay, that's a one plus one equals three situation, could possibly get you set up in a better position for your eventual exit. Also, the strategy basically ensures that you have cash flow after the sale. So a lot of times these sales aren't big enough to just kind of live off indefinitely. That was certainly the case with our e-commerce business that we sold. So it was a great thing that we did this split and sell idea early on because we got the wheels greased for the next cash flow because eventually that nut disappears. The next concept we've been talking about a lot is related to all this. We're going to call it the tasty vine after Ian's favorite recreational food item. The basic idea is if you are going to sell and it is not going to get you to your freedom line and you don't have the split, so you don't have a cash flow enterprise, then you need to have the next vine to jump onto. And it's 
not like you need to. It's not a rule in life, but it's a really worthy thought experiment. And I actually did this a few times at DCBKK. It was super fun. Okay. Determining your freedom line is an amazing thing to do with your business partner, with your friends, with your romantic partner at night. You sit down and you say, look, what is the secret? We're going to put it on the fridge. It's going to happen. But if you can't get to the, if the secret hasn't manifested yet in your life, you might just need a vine to jump onto. It's a backup plan. This is also uh, the strategy of people that can't be alone in relationships too. So like they know that breakup's coming, but they're already texting the next person or the previous person. <laughs> yes, right. It's like, I cannot be left here uh, without something to hold on to. You know what? There you go. That We should rename it to whatever that is. What's that called? I don't know. I'm sure it's in, a, in, in some kind of therapy book. <laughs> <laughs> what I see with the freedom line is it lends itself to a great deal of specificity. Hey, I want to make 10 million bucks off of this business. Here's the accounts I'm going to put it in. I'm going to draw 4%. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to buy my mom's her, a crib. And then here's how I'm going to live. What I'm not seeing is that much granularity with people who are not quite meeting the freedom line, but kind of want to move on to other things. And like other things is sort of this just like twinkle fingers kind of thing, like other things. And so I think it's very productive to define that vine as specific as you can, because this is the middle ground that people really get into trouble with. I've actually seen it specifically happen a lot of times where it's not quite clear what they want to do with every dollar, but they have a more general idea of what they're going to do with their behavior. There's a sort of fantasy that, well, here's how I'm going to spend my time. I'm going to look for businesses to buy. I'm going to do blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. Typically, by the way, you're not going to be able to afford as good of a business as you just sold. That's a definitional thing. Yeah. Unless you have a bunch of personal wealth that's independent of your business. So you, now you just sold the business. Your time's all freed up. You're this roving bohemian who's amazing at business, but with not a clear plan. So the idea of the vine, the tasty vine, is simply to get super granular about where every single dollar in that transaction is going to go. Because the dollars are where the rubber meets the road. They're the real leverage. Forget about your behavior. Forget about your free time, your Mai Tais on the beach, or that cool side project you're working on. I want to talk cheddar. I want to know where every dollar from this sub-freedom line transaction is going to go. It's going to be the most fun day of our life. Let's take a notebook. Let's go to a hotel lobby. Let's just hang out and talk about where every dollar is going to go before we make a sub-freedom line transaction. So I think that's a cool extra thought experiment to add to the before the exit ebook. There you go. Also audiobook, I want to say. Audiobook. <laughs> don't don't sound so short, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a physical book with a, a cover and a back. Yeah, it's got a yeah, book. Yeah, it's great. you can order it. It's cool. At the end of the book, Ian, I have this chapter called The Devil's Advocate, which is it's an official function. I know we have a, quite a religious episode. It's an official function in the Catholic Church. The devil's advocate steps up at a coronation of a saint and says, yo, I know y'all want this saint, but let's talk about the dark side of this candidate. I'm going to argue against the saint. And in some ways before the exit is that. 50% of founders have some degree of depression or misery after exiting. They regret it. And typically when you go onto the Twitters or onto the Amazons or to events, People talk about exiting your business as the ultimate achievement of entrepreneurship. It's the exit. And I think a little bit of what Nathan Barry is showing us on Twitter is, hey, the ultimate achievement for me with ConvertKit is not exiting. It's about owning this incredible platform, this incredible vehicle, and building the best team and company that I can. That's the end game for me. It's pretty that's rare. that's a story that doesn't get told as much, just like when everybody's super happy about the new saint and not enough devil's advocates are digging back into their history a little bit, talking about some of the unsavory behaviors that they've made in the past. And that's what that book is essentially saying is like, there's two sides to this story. And I think the book really, we really recognize that there's no really simple answer to this. Nathan Berry sells to Spotify for another founder. That's the right decision. That's an incredible outcome, right? You've sold to a world-class company. You have this generational wealth. You're moving on to other things. So there's just two sides to the token here. And I think that's why it's such a fascinating issue is that deciding the right thing to do is tough and very particular. Let me read a, a post from Christopher Gimmer, 
who's been on this pod and is an incredible founder, he writes on a non-exit, so deciding not to exit, in hindsight, we should have sold his company, Snappa, during the COVID boom when growth accelerated beyond what was normal and valuations were running high. I knew it wasn't the company I wanted to run for 20 years, but we were nervous about selling before we had another idea or enough money that we'd never have to work again. So in other words, Chris followed the advice of this podcast, decided not to sell, and now thinks it was a bad decision. So fair enough. The reality is, and going back to his tweet, an exit would have provided virtually infinite runway, even if we were a bit shy of the never have to work again number. Now our growth has declined and we'll never see those valuations again. But this is why business is so hard. For every story you hear about a founder who regrets not selling, you'll hear plenty of stories from founders who do regret selling. My advice would be this. If you don't know in your heart that you don't want to run your current business for another 10 or 20 years, take the cash if you're on the upswing and a good opportunity presents itself. This is essentially Anar's um, talk at DCBKK was exactly that. If you know in your heart that it's not going to work out forever and you're, the market conditions are good and an opportunity presents itself before you start to stagnate, before growth starts to go down, get paid. And I think it's a really good message. And in the case of like Nathan Barry, the man has like a vision for the next, it seems like 10 at least plus years. In Chris's case, it seems like it was a fun thing for him to do. He really enjoyed it. He was making good money, but didn't want to do it for the next 10 years. So I think that's a pretty good heuristic, Dan, to follow, which is like, can you see yourself doing this 10 years from now, or rather the onstage test? Can I still be talking about this 10 years from now? Looking back at our sale, which was nearly 10 years ago, now, I'm sure the first year or two, that was like my ego, like a big part of that was, yeah, we sold a business. That was like the thing that I started conversations with. It was like, yeah, sold a business, sold a business, exit a business. You know, you had a, you I, had a, a gray t-shirt that said seller. A seller, the- exactly. <laughs> you know what? I don't think I've told anybody that in like the last five years. It's just like not part of the conversation. Except for the podcast point. audience who is like, yeah, guys, we know. <laughs> <laughs> like, cool, guys. Yeah, we know. We remember. <laughs> totally. But it's one of these things that's so relevant at the time. I think if we exited for like life-changing forever money, maybe that's the story that you have to tell people because you're not working anymore. And people are curious, perhaps, like how you're spending your time and how you got all this money. Then you have to tell that story. But for us, that's not the case. And I don't think that's the case for most people. I want to say like everything's temporary and timing really matters. Love it. Put my head on a swivel. The mushrooms hit. <laughs> I'm on my second Is cup, this dude. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. All right. Cool. Well, that's it. Ian, before we go, the DC BKK good vibes are just flooding in this week from all channels, people sharing different emotions, but just how happy they were with the event. It's just been super, super cool. We've yet to create a recap post, which we'll be putting up at dynamitecircle.com here in the next few weeks to highlight the photos and some of the stories. And we have some video as well. But yeah, I think everybody's still kind of on the come down from one of the coolest events that we've run in the past few years. So today we've had our master of ceremonies, Adam Palmiter, on the show to share some of his thoughts. He's been on the DC team for many years now. So I thought it'd be cool to bring him on the pod and dig into some of his uh, favorite moments from the event. Let's roll it. Just swooping in here to say a little bit about Adam before we jump in. Adam is an artist, a comedian. He also has an online business. He's doing it all. In fact, Ian has commissioned artwork from Adam in his living room. I mean, this guy's seriously talented. Check out his Instagram. I thought it would be cool to have Adam on to share some of his experiences at DCBKK this year. So we'll kick off the interview with a clip from his live comedy show from the DCBKK Lounge, Comedy Lounge, and our conversation will follow. So without further ado, Adam Palmer, everybody, enjoy. How are we doing, DCBKK? Yes! Welcome to the DCBKK Comedy Club. My name is Adam Palmiter. Hey, who is here because of the Tropical NBA podcast? All right, yes, a lot of us. Those guys, they're getting kind of famous. (laughs) But we're here because we're part of the Dynamite Circle, right? The Dynamite Circle, awesome community, okay name. 
right? If you try to explain to someone, you're going to the DC. What does DC stand for? Ah, never mind. It's, it's not really important. It's not. Dynamite Circle just sounds like low-rent Avengers. <laughs> like who they call when the problems aren't that bad, you know? They're like, oh no, Thanos is back and he's posting fake Amazon reviews. Who do we call, Iron Man? No, we need the boss man. <laughs> Guys, we're here because we have weird jobs. A lot of jobs didn't exist 10 years ago that we have, right? No one comes from a long line of drop shippers. <laughs> no one's like my father and his father before him and buying FBA backlinks for as long as we can remember. My grandmother come from the old country with the clothes on her back and her knowledge as a social media marketing ninja. <laughs> That's a fake job. <laughs> it's not a real job. But I guess if you just say it enough and believe in it, it's real, you know, like crypto. I'm sure you guys can understand that. We got crypto people in here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. You guys had some, some bad PR the last couple of years. The la I mean, but... I think it's coming back. Fear not, my non-fungible friends. <laughs> because just like any great shift in culture, first, they ignore you. Then, they laugh at you. And then, you try to explain what an NFT is. And then, they laugh at you again. <laughs> Much harder. <laughs> Crypto's tough, but at least you're not coaches. I mean... <laughs> I know, we got a lot of coaches. Too many coaches, not enough players. <laughs> not enough players. I'm happy to come to these conferences and see hustle culture take a little break. It got pretty intense there for a while, right? I had a buddy of mine who used to refer to his children as a side hustle. <laughs> not a great sign. Got divorced last year, kept calling it a rebrand. It's like, that's not how this works. It's, I like the intense business guy. You guys know this bit is definitely not about any of you. But the intense business guy who likes to reword like a sentence to make himself sound deep, you know? Someone who's like, they used to tell me I was a poor test taker. Turns out, tests were a poor me taker. <laughs> Whoa, look at this guy. He sounds like an aggressive fortune cookie. Wow. They get real deep in themselves. They're like, passive income, Let's talk about aggressive income. We are not the same. I was born in an ice bath at Burning Man. I never had parents, I had shareholders. I am the ultimate entrepreneur. I live by the 80-20 rule, right? 80% hustle, 20% grind, 10% athletic greens. <laughs> then another 20% hustle just before bed. I sleep 13 hours a night listening to Tim Ferriss. That's what I do. I love competition. I thrive off of it. I take antibiotics and probiotics and let them duke it out inside of me. It gives me an edge. Work smarter, not harder. I do both. I am a hard, smart business boy. And I am insufferable at conferences. <laughs> no, it's all in good fun, though. I do like, I do like meeting the entrepreneurs who like, they kind of like, they like to talk through you sometimes. They use a lot of like acronyms and business code and make them sound like, you know, super smart. And you're just supposed to sit there and go, yeah, yeah, okay. You, I'm sure we've met this person. It's usually at a party and they just tell a story like, I met a uh, CEO of an SEO company back at DCBKK, and he was having problems meeting certain KPIs with zero SOPs in place. So what does he do? He goes on a random website, hires a COO, and this SOB turned out to be a real POS because he ended up destroying the company's CRM by Q4, leaving them DOA. And it's like, LMAFO, hire much? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, right? Should have gone to Dynamite Jobs. <laughs> and thank you all for coming to the fastest comedy show in Asia. My name is Adam Palmer. Please enjoy the rest of the conference. Please. All right, we're in. What's up, Adam? Hey, Dan, how are you? Where are you right now? Currently in Chiang Mai, Thailand. I heard you were at a party the other night with 50 
attendees of the conference and it was dope. It might as well have been a DC meetup. <laughs> Parties generally start strong and then be like a lull, maybe time to leave. However, it began to downpour and around 10 o'clock at night, trapping everyone essentially for two hours <laughs> and no one had a bad time. It, it was really cool. Like, everyone was clearly still buzzing off uh, an incredible event in Bangkok. Yeah, it was a really great way to wrap up the season up here. How, how long have we been working together? Well, 2017 was my first year as a volunteer at DCBKK. And that was a pretty big life-changing year for me, being exposed to the community and just everything I had to offer. Um, Why is that? I think that they snuck in. A bit of a background, when I asked a volunteer in 2017, initially I was turned down because you had enough volunteers, but I heard that they were looking for a design for their t-shirt that year. So <laughs> I'm an artist and I jumped on the opportunity to create a Bangkok skyline and I offered that to you guys to let me volunteer, which you did, wow, which is great. And there's the same weekend where you and Ian trusted me to do a quick comedy show between the keynote speakers and having never seen me perform, I could have been bad or offensive or both. And yeah, you guys let me take the reins on that, which led to you offering me the position as the MC for uh, DCBKK, DC Mexico, at that time, DC Austin. So yeah, I think I found a, a cool little back door into the DC community, but since then it's been really, uh, really an incredible journey. I think it says something about me as a founder that I was terrified to have a comedy show at an event. Like I saw that as an existential risk and I went there and I was like, oh yeah, this is what we need. <laughs> it was, I mean, look, it's not like you and Captain Charisma, the boss man aren't great on stage, but I think it is a great intro to the DC community because it speaks to the members where everyone figures out what their power is for the community, how they can add value to the community. And everyone seems to pitch in what they can do. People in the DC seem to have their own superpower, and that could be for business, for lifestyle, for anything. And it really seems to be a whole week long of everyone pooling together their powers and showing what they can do for each other, really pushing that cooperation over competition feeling that you really find in the DC, which I think is rare. This community seems to really value, help each other. Before we jump into our five point, we got five different takeaways from DCBKK that we're going to share. I kind of want to get your current take on Chiang Mai because we talked about the digital nomad thing. I recently came across a, a Reddit thread that someone's like, is Chiang Mai just like completely overhyped? Like someone explained this place to me. Yet you're there with hundreds of online internet business people right now. I'm just curious. What's your take on Chiang Mai's relevance to the scene in 2023? What's it like up there for people? Most of the people listening to this haven't been there. Chiang Mai is, it's almost like a little Colorado town in Asia. It's got mountains. It's got great hiking. It's got incredible Thai food. Everyone seems to be just very happy, surrounded by nature, beautiful temples. And I think that's the initial draw for a lot of tourism here obviously, but for people like us, it's been a hotspot for digital nomads because the way of living here is cheap. There's good internet, great cafes, and slowly but surely it went from this kind of backpackerish community to more of an established business home for a lot of people. I know several members in the more advanced SEO community, I started calling this place home, but I think it's just such an easy place if you are bootstrapping or advanced just because it, there's always something happening and there's all sorts of meetups very easy to get around the weather's amazing i could just keep on going on about amazing things about it but i think one of the biggest things that's changing is that the types of businesses that are coming here before it was a little more scrappier before a lot more coconut cowboys coming out here and just starting businesses whereas now you're seeing people like moving their entire families here Realizing that this is a really doable home base. And what happens then is that community really starts to form. So when you have those community roots, you get those community fruits. And I think that's really what you're starting to see around here in Chiang Mai these days. Pretty cool. One of the things when you compare it to a Colorado town, I was thinking 
if you want to go live in Colorado for six months and you compare the pricing to get something like high quality transport, high quality food, personal trainer, a bunch of like engaged friends, stuff to do every other night of the week, Colorado, like that could take a long time to develop. It could take, it could take you years to build something like that. And it could cost four or five times what you could just go get that in Chiang Mai right now. You could have a much more engaged group of friends. You could have high quality food, transport, personal trainer, activities, networking, you name it. You don't have to do this half a decade build up. I've been exploring this concept of the UI of a place, the user interface versus the API. But this guy online was like, why is everybody going to Chiang Mai? And I, I'm just trying to like wrap your experience in a theory. And I, I think it just boils down to like, you can like go from zero to fully adorned life in a couple thousand bucks a month and a plane flight. And it's hard to do that. You can essentially live like you would live as like embedded successful person in that Colorado town right away in Chiang Mai for a few thousand bucks a month. And of course, you're going to have to put up with some downsides in order to do that. There's an air quality problem. It's a bit more hectic than that Colorado town would be. The road safety isn't quite there. There's downsides. There's visa issues and stuff like that. But on the other hand, like what, what might take you a few years in Colorado, you could get in a few weeks in Chiang Mai. And I think therein lies the appeal. Oh, totally. I would just say the overall quality of life. I've lived in a lot of places and there's something about showing up to a place like Chiang Mai and knowing you're not going to have to check for your wallet every 10 minutes or walk down the road at four in the morning. No one will bother you. And maybe that's just a, a reflection of the Thai people. We've been overwhelmingly welcoming and warm. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth behind that. So it just really helps you not just nurture your business, but nurture your lifestyle. And for digital nomads or people just looking for a, a change of venue for a while, this is a really a fantastic option. To me, it reminds me a little bit of Austin in that way. If you come to Austin, Texas, and you're waiting for your like visuals to like blow your mind or like some kind of extreme experience, you're not going to get it. It's the same thing with Chiang Mai. It's not going to blow you away. It's more of uh, the total package. And there's a lot of seven out of tens happening in both locations. As uh, David Perel wrote in a recent article, Chiang Mai is in like 10 out of 10 this, 10 out of 10 that. And then you're making some big sacrifice. You can imagine what's an example that's like a 10 out of 10. In Asia, you might look at Bali or Malibu in California, it's like 10 out of 10 beauty, but like 10 out of 10 costs too. So yeah, um, you get a lot of sevens in these places and that yeah. across the board evens out to a pretty good life. That's what I would say. Chiang Mai, seven out of seven. All right. So we've got five reflections we want to talk about DCBKK. The first here, and it, look, if we're being a bit precious about this, forgive us. We've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> a memory or a vignette that feels like DCBKK. Oh, man, I would say it's probably 2018. I was down in the lobby and Jeremy was speaking with the concierge about getting 30 bags of ice brought up to his room because he wanted to host an ice bath meetup. You know, he used to live here in, uh, in Thailand. He spoke a little bit of Thai and he's trying to explain to this guy these 30 bags of ice. And the concierge and the Conrad, you know, incredible people, they'll beat you, whatever you'd like. And just watching this guy try to process what was about to happen. Like, are you doing like a kidney transplant or something in your room? And then, no, of course, you know, he explained this ice bath. And so they got about 20 people in there and he led this big ice bath. And it's not traditionally people who would try an ice bath. It was a lot of people who were there simply out of curiosity. And they had heard about this before and they saw an opportunity. They're like, all right, well, this guy in the community, he's speaking about all these benefits and Let's take a cold dip, you know, with 19 of my closest friends. So watching that whole thing unfold, separate from anything from like the main stage talks, it was like, yeah, it kind of felt like TCBKK. Like you can kind of take the reins and just go with it. Totally. For me, one of the vibes is jet lag. There's something beautiful for me about like taking in Bangkok through the lens of jet lag. And mm -hmm. I recovered by the end of the conference. I was sleeping normally. And then after the closing party, I sort of popped up at five in the morning, just had with so many ideas. So I went for a long walk through Bangkok with no sleep and a notebook. And there's something about me that there's some poetry and some otherness and some this feeling of, 
amazing disconnect and embeddedness you get from being in one of the world's nuttiest cities. I just loved walking around. I was like, I'm just going to walk for two or three hours until I can get breakfast somewhere. That feels like the vibe, which is we're all stepping away together and we're all just going to be in this weird world where we're half jet lagged and just half completely switched on. I find like a lot of full notebooks comes from that. And it's hard to describe that in a few words, but that's part of the vibe for me is like the mix of the intensity of the experienced sort of dulled a bit by jet lag, but it's still all coming through. Yeah. I intend to agree with you there. Luckily, the last couple of years, I've been able to plan my trip to spend some time in Chiang Mai first and adjust, but there is that kind of dreamlike ethereal experience of coming to Bangkok. You walk into the hotel, you're, you're seeing pockets of DC members and you can feel that excitement. And so you don't want to be tired. Your body's not really letting you be tired, but you are taking it in through this lens of like, oh man, I got to get together. It's just because tonight's opening party. You got to do this and that. And like, you just take that excitement and, and steamroll yourself through this entire week. But because there is that sleepy, dreamlike state from a lot of people collectively, I think it adds to the, the overall mystique of what Bangkok has to offer, no matter what you're doing, but especially for something like this. All right. So we got five takeaways. We started with one, a vignette that feels like these big Here's number two, a personal takeaway. What's a personal takeaway you had from this year's event? Oh, man. I think personally, this was the first DCBKK that I truly felt like a DC member coming into the DC as a comedian, artist. It's quite a learning curve for me to, to figure out where it all lands. But over the last several years of being around the community, learning everything I can, repositioning things, having new courses coming out, having tangible things in my business that I can really work with people on. Whereas before I take in a lot with people, but I always had a chance to think like, okay, I'll be able to apply this after the conference right now. It's like a whole lot of work. But this year, my conversations seemed to change. And I don't know if that was on my part, personally feeling uh, leveled up, but I think like a lot of people who come to these in-person conferences for the first time experience a lot of that imposter syndrome. And I certainly wasn't immune to that either. Don't you think there's this idea where it's like, the quality of the income is more important than the quantity. I think by a lot of DC or standards, you had an online business for many years because you made money online and it was your money and you controlled it. And that's so different than talking to someone that works for a fancy company and they make a lot of money, but ultimately someone else is signing the check. Oh, sure. I guess really it's just the the overall long-term exposure to these. But, but now you have a meaningful online income. And you know, I completely owe that to the, the last you know seven plus years of my college education in the DC. DC. Well, that's how long it takes too, isn't it? Yeah. Love it. So we got a vignette that feels like Bangkok, a personal takeaway. Number three, a business or a lifestyle trend that's intriguing. I think the, the future of this space is really going to be exciting for new parents. I think that seeing parents, especially the last few years, especially through COVID, kind of take the reins with their children's education, take a little bit more responsibility in terms of what they're learning and how that can apply realistically to the future moving forward. We had uh, one of our volunteers, kid's 14 years old. He's developing AI software for hotel data systems. Like, you got to pay attention to this kid. <laughs> and the thing is, he writes in like eight different coder languages. He is fully employable, I think, by American standards at the age of 14. I don't think that happens just on his own. I think he's got a couple of really open-minded parents. By the way, while everybody was writing blog posts about, is it possible to travel with the family full-time, basically? They were just doing it. They didn't even read yeah. the blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that, but to also prove us in the pudding. I think seeing parents really take more responsibility for uh, what their children learn and how applicable that can be for them in reality. I think this is going to be a really interesting space to watch. And I don't think there's really anything more powerful than a, a new parent trying to, to figure out what's best for their kids. 
So yeah, I think maybe the future of this entrepreneurial education is a great space to watch. Really interesting. All right. So we got a vignette, a personal takeaway and a business or lifestyle trend. Number four, something to improve about the event. You're not just the MC. I mean, we work together on the event as well. So I thought it'd be interesting to sort of get your insider take on uh, something you're thinking about improving. You know what? I feel like that DC has just experienced kind of a rebirth in their live events. I think we came back to DC BKK last year, full out swinging. My stage content had changed from just doing openings with jokes with really taking a little bit more of a personal uh, story side about what the DC had meant to me. And you as well, you got on stage and you opened up a bit more vulnerable with your community. And I think it was really, really appreciated because after 10 years of building a community, I think there is that cohesive trust across the board. And not only are we entrusting community members to put on great talks, great meetups, workshops, but they trust us to put on a great event. I think we've, as a team, started to trust each other a lot more in this last year. When you have someone really good at what they do and you let them run with the ball, magic really happened there. So I think, especially after this DCBK came, we're still kind of this infancy stage where we're really learning the power that what happens when this incredible team comes together. So I think maybe in a year, if you ask them that question, I'll have a better answer for you. Yeah, I have a list of 25 items. <laughs> Preliminary improvement opportunities. At one time had an event coordinator. We had a pretty good event. And then I sat down before the event ended and started going over how to improve it. And it was a total show. It was, it was the wrong choice in life for me to make. Let's put it that way. <laughs> But I have a critical mind. I mean, one of the things we're precious about the community and what the event means and a lot of other events, it's like, oh, I saw the schedule, like not impressive or super impressive or whatever. And it's, I'd like to see DCBKK get to the point where you are part of the event. Like as an attendee, you're a critical part. And if you're an introvert, that's something that we clock and you're going to be put in smaller spaces, but still your talents are on display. You're still connecting with relevant people. I love the concept of building an event where your mind and your ideas and your talents are engaged. And that comes the whole way to the team, right? We had a much more larger, complicated event, a more complicated team. And that meant there was a lot more autonomy for different team members to drive their portion of the event. And I thought it was the event was a lot better for it. That concept of like, there's a centralization of we're all getting together and feeling that vibe when it's important, whether it's a party or an opening speech or, or whatever, a narrative that we all want to participate in together. Look at this amazing person. Look at what Lucy's done. Look at what Mark's done in our midst. But then there's this incredible decentralization where people's leadership abilities are coming out or their talents are coming out or their stories are coming out. I want to improve upon that and continue to pursue this concept that everyone gets engaged beyond just showing up and watching somebody do something. Yeah. And I mean, right there, it's, that's the culture of DCPKK. It's almost like, you know, like the business relationships and the, and these longstanding friendships that started at DCPKK, they've kind of transcended the initial value prop of what the event was supposed to do, which was to bring together founders and to learn from each other. And now it's seemingly more of the, the experience because for so many years, people have kept coming back, coming back and, and they've invested so much into these relationships with people that when you do arrive in Bangkok, totally jet lagged, it's that feeling of, of really being a part of a community and uh, being a part of its culture. So um, yeah, hats off to you for, for creating something so great. <laughs> a memory, a personal takeaway, a business or lifestyle trend, something to approve upon, and finally something to double down on. What's something that for the next event coming up here in a few months that you're looking to double down on? Oh man, I would like to see more members get out there. I think giving the members an opportunity to get more involved. Yeah, that's, that was mine too. I got specific ideas of how I want to do that. I think for all the kind of old culture that's in the room, folks have been around for 10 years, literally, or plus, there's new members too. And I don't think we should take it for granted that this can be a slightly different experience than a typical conference and we can give roadmaps and guides for how to do eventing DC style. And I think building that out is like where the magic is. So it's something to think about for the next event. Cool. 
Adam Palmiter, what a pleasure to work with you on DCBKK, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. Was it good for you? It was good for us. We hope you'll join us next Thursday morning. Just a quick heads up on next week's show. We're doing a Q&A, so kick me a DM or drop us an email. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.